1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Today, my guest is Serena Parrick. Serena is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University. She works in Social and Political Philosophy, Feminist Philosophy, and Continental Philosophy. She's co-editor of the journal, Feminist Philosophy Quarterly. And she has a new book, which is titled, No Refuge, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. Now, discourse in wealthy Western countries about refugees tends to follow a familiar script. How many refugees is a country morally required to accept? What kind of care and support Are host countries required to provide? Who's responsible for maintaining the resulting infrastructure? What ultimately is to be done with refugees? But many of these questions assume that states are morally required to rescue refugees. Rarely does the discourse consider the role of wealthy nations in creating the conditions under which refugee crises emerge. More importantly, we often overlook the role of wealthy Western countries in designing the systems that refugees themselves must navigate in order to access support and assistance. As it turns out, these systems are often complex, inefficient, haphazard, and unfair. In her book, No Refuge, Serena Parikh argues that the refugee crisis needs to be understood as two crises. One focused on the moral responsibilities of wealthy nations in hosting refugees, and another having to do with the obstacles and impediments that refugees confront in trying to access assistance. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but let's begin as we normally do with our guest. Hello, Serena. Hi, Bob. How are you today?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks. It's, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. Um, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: I'd be happy to. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm currently a professor at Northeastern in Boston. Um, I direct the PPE program here, and I, I absolutely love being a professor in philosophy. I came to this position um, from from the University of Connecticut, where I had worked previously at the Human Rights Institute and in the Department of Philosophy there, mm. and. Uh, Before that, I had done my PhD at Boston College on Hannah Arendt and her work on human rights. So this book project is kind of the culmination of a lot of different years of scholarship and being interested in contemporary events, being interested in the refugee crises, being interested in how states respond to crises that really challenge their own values and goods. I started working on Hannah Arendt uh, right after 9-11. Uh, right, 9-11 oh, was about when I had started working on my dissertation. And I knew I wanted to write on Hannah Arendt, but I wasn't sure on quite what I wanted to write on. So I, so I actually went to a conference at the New School in October um, in New York City. And that really transformed how I was thinking of Arendt and, and the role that I saw that philosophy could play in understanding contemporary events. And it sort of hit me like a bolt of lightning that this is what I wanted to do. And this was something that was so important. And I feel like I've spent the last 20 years just trying to unpack that and explain that in different ways over and over again. And I've been writing on refugees now for, I realized this the other day, close to a decade. Uh, (laughs) Shortly after I I finished writing on our rent, I wrote on human rights, I sort of started working on refugees. I wrote an academic book on refugees uh, called Ethics and, sorry, what was that book called? Um, the, <laughs> um, so that was called um, "Refugees and the Ethics of Forced Displacement," and it came out with <laughs> Routledge <Rojo> in 2017. <laughs> and <laughs> what happened in 2017, of course, is the last you know presidential cycle was 2016. And this book was coming out and uh, it was getting some attention. And I began doing a lot of public talks on refugees because at that time, refugees were um, somehow become this villain in political discourse. And and politicians, in both in the U.S. and other countries, were taking turns telling us how dangerous refugees were and how they could protect us from refugees. And it became really clear to me that there was a need to understand our ethical response to refugees by, by everyone, not just by philosophers. So I set about writing the book that we're going to talk about today, um, Ethics in the Global Refugee Crisis, in order to address what I saw as this need in um, just general general intellectual scholarship, if you will. So the book itself is, is was written and is being published as a trade book, So I hope it's accessible to certainly to philosophers and to undergraduates in particular, but even to people without a philosophy background. And some of the parts in it, you know, were sort of criticized by philosophers. Like, why are you introducing content? Why are you introducing utilitarianism? And the reason is because it was written for people who had no background in philosophy, but wanted to think ethically about our obligations to refugees, how we should understand the situation, how we should respond, that sort of thing.
1: Right, right. So let me just say this, you know, the book is, um, even though I am a philosopher, I think I can make this judgment. I think the book is, um, uh, well, not only well written, but, uh, very accessible. So, um, in that regard, uh, I, I I should think that, um, a non-specialist should, you know, should be able to read it and find it engaging and certainly, um, the way in which the philosophical analysis is woven into um, the actual stories of particular uh, refugees, um, I think, is very compelling. Um, could you say something a little bit about some of the stories that are that are in the book? We meet some a range of of, of people uh, trying to access support uh, in the book. Um, were these? Uh, Were these uh, people that you read about or that you knew?
2: Yeah, thanks, Bob. And thanks for the kind words about the book. I I really appreciate hearing that. I'm really glad to hear that. The stories all come from published accounts written by journalists, human rights scholars, and other people who work directly with refugees. So a couple of the books were book-length, or sorry, a couple of the stories come from book-length accounts written by journalists um, who who lived in refugee camps, who worked in Europe, who spent time, uh, in some cases, years and years interviewing refugees. Others came from newspaper accounts that I would read about and sort of file away. And the reason I wanted to include stories is because, uh, you know, I'm not of the school that believes that rational argument alone persuades people. Right. I think that we are motivated by reason as well as by other drivers, our conscience in part, um, our sentiment towards people. So I wanted readers to be open to considering moral obligations to refugees and to be, think- be open to thinking about refugees in different ways than they might have previously been thinking about them. And I thought that stories were one of the best ways to do this. When I would give these public talks, one of the ways I could connect with people would be by telling a story of, of, of a refugee. And I was always clear, this, these were not my stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was not doing first-person research. In refugee camps on them. But when you hear them, it's, it's hard to keep your heart hardened <laughs> to not being open to considering, you know, what, how we might treat them better or others in similar situations, how we might not, how we might consider them. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but at the end of I think chapter five, I also tell the story of somebody who traffics human beings and tortures yeah. them for money. <laughs> yeah. So they're not all sympathetic characters. That's right. <laughs> but That's right. you know, kind of, but interesting to see what they are thinking from their own perspectives.
1: Good, and you know, one of the things I found um, uh, interesting and helpful about the sort of narrative dimension of your argument is that, um, you know, it's not, it's often not, um, easily legible to us that are thinking about refugees and all kinds of sort of related questions, immigration, borders, uh, and all the rest. A lot of this thinking often proceeds by way of a, um, not always explicit portrayal of the human beings that are being talked about.' Right? Right? We're not yes. always it's not right. always clear that that, yeah, well, we're being invited to think about these issues by way of a often less explicit or less than explicit portrayal of the kind of human being or the kind of life that's being spoken of. Um, and often I I take it that um, uh, that portrayal um, focuses on um, uh, or, or 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 is is fixed on um, uh, providing a fairly negative. Conception
2: yes.
1: <laughs> of these lives, for the, the sake state. of helping <laughs> us to draw right. For right, good. For, for for the sake of encouraging us to draw certain kinds of normative conclusions about what the responsibilities are. So when you think that these are terrible, you know, crime, uh, crime committing, violent, uh, uh, dangerous people, um, a normative conclusion is already sort of embedded uh, uh, in there about the the responsibilities and level of support that a wealthy nation owes. Which turns out is just not an accurate portrayal, I would guess.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's, it was such a nice way of putting it. We often are thinking of our obligations with a tacit picture of who a refugee is. And if I was talking to right. you in 2016, you, if you lived in the U.S., you would think refugees are terrorists. If you lived in right. Europe, you would think refugees are sexual predators. Um, everywhere, refugees are portrayed as criminals, which is why I go through in the book how like, those none of those assumptions are correct. In fact, in the case of refugees being terrorists in the U.S., it's... You could almost not put in a category of people that it would be less true of than refugees. Right. Um, so I go through all the data on that just to show that there's no link between refugees and any of those categories, even though they're so widely spoken of that people just start believing them. I, I was giving a talk once to some students. And a student said to me, If everything you're saying is true, why am I still so afraid of refugees? And I realized how deep that image, that idea of refugees being a threat to us, had embedded in people's consciousness. That even well meaning, well educated, thoughtful, reasonable people had internalized the view of refugees as somehow being dangerous and threatening to us. So the introduction is meant to help people get past that and then the stories and that are woven throughout the book are to kind of encourage people to have this different perception of refugees
1: oh fabulous so let's um, let's then sort of uh, dive into the book now um, you argue and this is a, um, a sort of central uh, philosophers talk about planks this is a central plank of uh, <laughs> of the book, maybe it's central, two central planks, uh, that there are two crises, not one and keeping them distinct and seeing them as distinct and seeing, um, uh, sort of training ourselves to see the other, uh, uh, crisis, um, is, uh, you know, central to, to what the book's project is. So can you tell us what the two crises are and how we're, 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 we, we incline strongly to see only one, but need to see the other as well?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a nice way of putting it. My book starts with the observation that when most people think about the quote unquote global refugee crisis, they're picturing it from their own point of view. Since I live in the U.S. and I'm originally from Canada and when I used to travel, it would mostly be to Europe. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the perspective of people from these countries and from Australia as well where the refugee crisis has meant primarily a crisis for us receiving refugees or asylum seekers. In the U.S., we're likely to think of the Central Americans on the U.S. border, the caravans, or perhaps Mm -hmm. of refugees who are resettled via the resettlement process, but then who have been spoken of as terrorists and criminals during various election cycles. If you're from Europe, or even if you're just following the European news, you're likely to think of Syrians who came to Europe in in incredible numbers in 2015. Over a million refugees came to Italy and Greece, uh, many of them alive, but some of them also dead. Mm -hmm. And then began to, of course, go over land through Italy and Greece to Germany and Sweden. So these images are very vivid in our consciousness. So from this perspective, the refugee crisis is first and foremost a crisis for us. How are we going to handle all these people? What is this going to mean in terms of our economy? How about our safety? And even though I think people are sympathetic to some extent to refugees, when they come in large numbers or seemingly large numbers, sympathy can quickly turn to fear and people don't quite know what to make of them. And I think most people are aware of the situations that refugees are fleeing. So many in Europe, for example, were sympathetic initially to Syrian refugees because they had a vivid picture of the destruction of the country during the civil war. So to some extent, people were aware of what the refugee crisis meant to refugees, but not in the way that I think. So if the refugee crisis is first and foremost a crisis for us, I wanted to add a different perspective to our understanding of the global refugee crisis. I wanted to help readers really understand what the crisis meant for refugees themselves, what they had to go through just to ask for refuge, and what kind of response they were likely to face. While many people understood to some extent at least, where people were fleeing when they, fl- when they would flee from their homes, most people were totally unaware of what they experienced as they sought refuge. And as I show, the vast majority of refugees do not gain refuge in any meaningful sense. And I hope that once readers understood this crisis, we could rethink the way we responded to refugees and be more open to considering so- solutions. Now for philosophers, oh, okay.
1: No, 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 please continue.
2: (laughs) Oh, well, so I think philosophers have a slightly different perspective on this. So there, for a long time, people wrote on immigration and would write on refugees as sort of a footnote, side issue, and now increasingly philosophers are writing on refugees, which is terrific. But I also think philosophers don't fully consider what seeking refuge in the 21st century means. I think that, you know, because most of the work is being done by those of us in Western countries, we tend to adopt the first perspective that the crisis is one for Western democratic states who have to decide in some fair manner how many refugees they'll let in. And if they acknowledge it's a crisis for refugees, the crisis they talk about is the one they experienced before they fled their home. So the war, the political persecution, et cetera. And it seemed to me that there was a tacit assumption that how we treat refugees while we decide whether or not we'll admit them as members is more or less ethical. We don't really think about it. For example, that the refugee camps we've set up to, quote unquote, temporarily house refugees actually protects their human rights and provides basic subsistence and are sufficient to temporarily discharge the duty to help refugees while we decide on the ethical basis for including or excluding refugees. But as I try to show throughout the book, this isn't the case at all. So adding the second perspective, the perspective of someone seeking refuge in the 21st century, I think is crucial to develop a normatively adequate moral response. So any theory of our obligations to refugees that focuses only on a a small part of the crisis, in particular, how many refugees we should admit or resettle, ignores this very real harm that we also have moral obligations to. Address, and I think we can we can disagree about this. We can debate about um, to what extent we have moral obligations. Once we have this larger framework in in mind, I think. Um, yeah. So, so I, as far as I'm aware, no one has yet tried to defend refugee camps in their current state or to defend deterrence policies that violate international norms. And yet by not criticizing them as part of the system, we are kind of tacitly, I think, acknowledging that they're okay and the only real issue is one of resettlement.
1: Right, right, right. Um, so it, it turns out then that one dimension of... Even the first crisis, the one that we um, tend to think of ourselves as familiar with, and the the, the common frame for for thinking about refugees, um, but one dimension of that first crisis is that. You know, there's some conceptual dispute uh, about w- what refugees are, what, what what property renders somebody a refugee rather than um, an economic migrant or um, some other uh, classification of person trying to gain admittance uh, into um, uh, some new um, state. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the those conceptual debates about what refugees are?
2: I'd be happy to. So I have a whole chapter on this, as as you know. Uh, Before I kind of go into the nitty gritty of who a refugee is and who a refugee isn't, I just want to make a few preliminary points. The first point is the overarching point I hope to draw readers' attention to in the book. Uh, It's that who counts as a refugee is much less a conceptual issue than a matter of power. It's a question of life and death in many circumstances, and I think philosophers naively try to separate out who should be considered a refugee from who we are morally permitted to neglect. And don't think of the implications of what this means from the point of view of of a refugee or somebody seeking refuge. And it's as if, you know, if we could just find the perfect definition of who a refugee is, we could cut through all the power dynamics and all the murkiness of the world as it really exists. And I'm skeptical that we can do that in a way that would allow us to be so certain of our conclusion. Second, and this connects to what I said previously, regardless of what you think a person has to go through in order to qualify as a, as a real refugee or a legitimate refugee, and then receive all the benefits that come with that. There is nothing they could have done that would make it acceptable for us to violate their human rights as they seek refuge. And this, I think, is a really important point and one that we neglect When we talk about, when we debate who a refugee is and who isn't, I think this narrow focus actually prevents us from taking seriously the ways that we harm all people seeking refuge by, as you said in your introduction, the way the system for seeking refuge has been set up. Hmm. And I think by implication, it actually makes it more acceptable to treat non-refugees in morally unacceptable ways, Right. So if I could give uh, an example, a kind of common recent example. So imagine a woman who crosses from Guatemala into the United States from Mexico with her baby seeking asylum. And we can debate whether this person should count as a refugee or not. But either way, I think we should see it as morally wrong to violate her human rights and the rights of her child. So maybe she crossed the border in 2016, fleeing domestic violence. And at that time, if you were seeking asylum in the U.S., fleeing domestic violence from Guatemala, you would have been considered a legitimate asylum seeker. If she had crossed a few months later, say in 2017, after Jeff Sessions, the attorney general at the time, had instructed immigration judges to ignore the precedent that had been set and to deny women fleeing domestic violence asylum, she wouldn't have qualified. So we can have that debate over what is the right definition that we should employ and for what reason. But either way, it's hard to justify how she could deserve to have her child taken away from her, as was the policy at the time. And it's its unimaginable that we could think that the child it's herself could deserve to be traumatized the way in the way that we had traumatized children at the time, either by separating them from their parents or from the widely reported abuse of children, including sexual abuse in detention. So my point is that Uh, Even if you don't think such a person should count as a refugee, there is virtually no argument that can be given to justify violating her human rights and the rights of her child in this way. And I worry sometimes that the focus on defining refugees um, ignores the reality of what's going on while we debate this question. Um, And then finally, just to reiterate something I said earlier, my goal one of the goals of my book is to show that because there's no universally agreed on definition of a refugee, and I'll explain this in a second, one that's consistent with our law, our moral intuition, and our on-the-ground practice, we shouldn't be fully confident that we're accurately characterizing the, categorizing the right people as refugees and others as not deserving of any help whatsoever. I just don't think we can have the kind of certainty around this that many philosophers aim at or think we can have, um, a perfect definition that would allow us to be confident that we're not in fact treating some refugees as being immoral. But this is the system we've created. We've created this all or nothing system wherein if you get a refugee status, you get a whole host of benefits and goods that come with it. And if you're denied refugee status, you're entitled to virtually nothing. And determining who a refugee is in a way that doesn't lead to a morally arbitrary outcome, I think, is a real challenge. And so I think it requires a lot of intellectual humility on our part. Okay, so let me then tell you (laughs) uh, some of the debate in who actually is categorized as a refugee. And who is not. The standard way of, of introducing this topic is to look at the definition of a refugee that comes from the UN Refugee Convention of 1951, and then its protocol that was added in 1967. And here we get a definition of a refugee as someone who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion, is outside the country of his nationality and is unable or unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country. So that's the the standard definition that's often invoked. And on the one hand, it sounds very precise. You have to be persecuted by your state on one of several grounds, so race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a social group. And this means something like being a child soldier, being a family member of a dissident, being an educated elite. And more controversially, it's been interpreted to include LGBT people, uh, victims of uh, female genital cutting and domestic abuse. So usually war generalized violence and poverty are not enough to be included as a refugee under this definition. So on the one hand, it seems very precise, but on the other hand, it's open to a lot of interpretation. So for example, what exactly is going to count as persecution? who has to do the persecution for it to count. In the case of domestic violence, it's not the state itself who is doing the violence or the persecution, but they're failing to adequately protect their citizens from private violence. And in the view of many people, this is tantamount to the state accepting this kind of violence. How bad does the persecution have to be? Are all questions different countries have answered at different times in their histories. And the other factor to keep in mind is that there is just sheer luck that's going to be involved in whether or not you're going to be seen as a refugee. Uh, As I mentioned, in some years, people fleeing domestic violence will receive asylum in the U.S., and in other years, they won't. Some countries in Europe will recognize Eritrean refugees nearly 100 percent of the time as being legitimate asylum seekers and give them refugee status, and other countries will refuse them entirely. In my book, I talk about a mother and daughter who are fleeing Honduras because they are persecuted for being HIV positive. The mother ends up getting asylum in the U.S. because she happened to have an asylum judge who believed her. And the daughter ends up being denied asylum because her asylum judge thought she either it didn't amount to legitimate persecution or didn't believe her story. So given how much is at stake for the people who are seeking refugee status, it seems that the the morally arbitrariness of the definition is really problematic. And I also like to point out that even though this is the UN definition of who a refugee is, the UN itself does not use this definition. They include... (laughs) all people who are quote, persons in refugee-like situations, including people fleeing violence, war, extreme poverty. So these are people who they think face the same risks as refugees, but who are unable to get official refugee status. So in practice, only the about 20 uh, or so resettlement states actually use this definition to determine who's gonna get a refugee and who's gonna get refugee status and who is not. Um, And I also wanted to point out that asylum, these terms asylum seeker and refugee are just two sides of the same coin. They're referring to the same person who would have to meet those uh, criteria. A refugee is somebody who is waiting for a country to acknowledge them as a refugee and allow them to enter. An asylum seeker is somebody who is already present in the country. They would like to consider them as a refugee. So it's just a difference in location rather than a difference in criteria. But what's equally important, I think, is who refugees and asylum seekers are contrasted with. And the main group that they're usually distinguished from are economic migrants, and broadly speaking, these are people who leave their country in order to improve their economic circumstances. And it could range from people fleeing extreme poverty, people who will be in danger of dying if they don't leave their countries, to people who simply want to improve their life circumstances. As I mentioned, I'm from Canada. I came to the US to study and eventually started working here. And technically, I would be considered an economic migrant. But obviously, I'm in a totally different category than somebody who might be fleeing drought um, and simply unable to get enough food in order to stay alive and who would be fleeing for a reason like that. So normally, we want to say refugees, persecution, economic migrant, economic status. But in reality, most migration flows are mixed, which is to say that they have people who are fleeing for different reasons. Most people who are actually considered to be refugees are fleeing failed states. So think Somalia, Sudan, um, countries like that. And these are countries where people are being persecuted and cannot have their human rights protected or receive even a minimal level of security. But they're also very poor countries, and citizens' insecurity in these countries are going to be compounded by their poverty. So it becomes hard, if not impossible, to disentangle their motives for fleeing. And again, this is why the UN doesn't even try to do that. (laughs) But it's a distinction that also taps into sympathy and prejudice. It taps into a sense of those who deserve our help, refugees, and those undeserving, those people who are just poor, who are coming to take our jobs, or or who are maybe taking advantage of refugees and the chaos in order to improve their circumstances. In Europe, the term migrant versus refugee or asylum seeker taps into some kind, some, some racist tropes about migrants in Europe. So many people, for example, believe that Africans, people coming from Africa to Europe, are not legitimate asylum seekers and are, are simply economic migrants. And it's indisputable that this is true in some cases. A lot of migrants will travel with refugees. But... In 2016, most of the migrants from Africa that arrived in Italy were Eritreans, and the UN, for example, has accused Eritrea of crimes against humanity. It's a country that tends to be a little less familiar to those of us in the U.S., but uh, e- Eritrea is been is called the North Korea of Africa. I mean, it's an absolutely atrocious mm-hmm country. Um, Sina, who you read about in the book, comes from Eritrea. And thinking about what her life prospects were like was horrific. So most Africans in 2016 were legitimate asylum seekers. And yet, because they were African, they were seen as merely economic migrants and not deserving of our help. But just to stress my point one last time even if we were able to define a refugee adequately and we were justified in excluding some and returning them home, it still needs to be pointed out that we cannot violate their human rights while they're seeking refuge, either when they come or as a way to discourage them from coming. So philosophically, then, is it possible to distinguish morally between these groups? And you know, this, of course, is the problem the philosophers have been talking about and thinking about and discussing and debating for a, quite a long time. And, of course, there's no resolution on the question, but there is some agreement among philosophers, in particular, that we have stronger obligations to refugees than we do to migrants in general. And this is something that almost that everyone agrees with, as far mm-hmm. as I know. There's also an increasing consensus that what should matter is not the source of harm, whether it's the government or a private actor or somebody else, but the severity of the harm and the fact that you can't be helped except by crossing a border. And this strikes me as the right approach, that the focus should be on the severity of harm and our ability to help. And so I think we ought to aim at being more inclusive or we ought to err on the side of being more inclusive rather than more exclusive. And we should think of refugees as people who have had their human rights severely violated, regardless of the source, and have been forced to flee their home countries and seek international protection. And I think this understanding is broader than the legal definition, of course, but it stops short of people uh, fleeing for simply economic reasons or economic reasons alone, without them being compounded by these human rights violations. And importantly, we owe all refugees a minimum amount of human dignity while they're seeking refuge, while we are determining whether or not they fall into our category of of refugee.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Well, great. Um, so there's a whole chapter in the book which... Um, uh, I just want to mention and uh, then ask about uh, a, a different chapter. So there's a whole chapter in the book where you show that um, this uh, conception of what our moral responsibilities are to refugees and how to understand um uh, how to understand them relative to the severity of uh, of the harm uh, that they suffer is supportable, we could say, um, from the point of view of a range of different sorts of uh, um, uh, normative ethical th- you know, theories. That is, this is not intended to be a strictly consequentialist or deontological or virtue-theoretic account. You want to show that uh, roughly the, um, the broad conception of uh, – um, uh, our moral responsibilities uh, to refugees uh, can be supported uh, from the perspective of almost any of the standard uh, normative frameworks, which is always a nice result <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> uh, uh, compelling. Um, but I wanted to d- sort of move quickly to um, some of the, f- the philosophical pushback Um uh, there's a, a pretty robust literature uh, among philosophers and sometimes political scientists that argues that um, our obligations to refugees are constrained uh, by considerations regarding um, the integrity of uh, uh, the character of a nation Um you know, America's for Americans. Um, the idea of um, self-determination, or the self-determination of a political community, um, which, uh, again, nobody—I I hope nobody—if anybody, very few—are um, would argue, uh, at least among philosophers and political theorists, that there are no obligations uh, to um, to refugees. However, there are these arguments that say, well, but they're constrained or that they're less – what we owe uh, uh, to asylum seekers uh, might be uh, less stringent than it may look for these other considerations. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about why you don't find those arguments as compelling as others?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not so much that I find them less compelling. It's that the way the problem is often framed is too narrow. And the result is that of their analyses is that their conclusions are insufficient. So the focus on our obligations to refugees, for most political theorists, are around resettlement or granting admission via asylum. Um, And I call this in my other book, The Ethics of Admission. And as you said, many people hold that whatever obligations we have to admit refugees can be constrained in some way by national character, by self-determination, by freedom of association. So It's not that the debate over resettlement is incorrect or that people are wrong, that our obligations around resettlement can be constrained in some ways. It just defines the problem too narrowly and consequently provides solutions or constraints that are too narrow. When I hear these discussions, I think that it's as if the refugee crisis were a crisis of not having enough spots for resettlement. And if only we can figure out the extent to which we can we, we must offer spots for resettlement or asylum. We'll have fully discharged our duties to refugees. But as I mentioned in the book, even at the height of refugee resettlement worldwide, we have never resettled more than 1% of refugees. Wow. So the modern resettlement regime is thought to have started in about 1980. And it's also important to point out that not all refugees want to be resettled, and um, Many would like the option of returning home at some point, or even if they believe that they're going to stay there for a long period of time, would like to stay in a country close to their homes where they may share, may share a language or a religion or have social ties. And even if the refugee crisis could be solved through resettlement, it doesn't take into account how refugees are treated while we decide on whether or not we should resettle them. That is, we don't really take into account life in refugee camps or in urban settlements or the fact that refugees have effectively been warehoused, that is, put out of moral consideration for decades, not merely months or years. What I think we should do is to frame the problem as encompassing both crises so that it becomes clear that we need to think about how we'll treat refugees who will never be resettled, either for reasons of, of you know sheer practical reasons or for reasons of national self-determinations, um, et cetera, freedom of association. And who remain in the global South. So we need to think about refugees who will stay in the global South. And we also need to consider how we will treat refugees who, I think, acting as agents, decide that we are wrong to exclude them, that they are not willing to die a slow death in refugee camps or watch their children grow up with no hope of a better future and demand that we admit them via asylum. So that's more why I think that arguing about whether or not our obligations to refugees can or should be constrained by national character or self-determination is not the the whole story. It just misses the point and leads us to misunderstand our moral obligations. But there is something really interesting about these approaches. Even those who think that our moral obligations to refugees can be constrained— conclude that we have obligations to respect the human rights of refugees. So even at the end of the day, even the most conservative philosophical views of refugees require us to both do a lot more for refugees than what we're doing, and conversely, refrain from harming them in many of the ways that we currently harm them. So I think this is such an interesting conclusion that even if you take, you know, say, let's take a nationalist position. So take the position of liberal nationalism, which holds that it's morally legitimate, in fact, morally required to consider the interests of fellow citizens above others, above non-citizens. Liberal nationalists, what makes them liberal is that even though the sort of nationalist sentiment is valid, we must still treat non-citizens with respect for their human rights. I think of David Miller as maybe the, the most well-known or best discussed, most discussed proponent of this view, certainly in relation to refugees. And for him, he thinks that states do have an obligation to refugees, but it's definitely not one that's unlimited or unconditional and it can be constrained by considerations of national identity. But He says that though states have a right to exclude refugees in some circumstances, it's only after they've done their fair share in helping refugees and they have to consider the effects of their policies on refugees. So what's interesting is that even though it justifies excluding refugees in some circumstances, it stresses that states have all kinds of obligations to refugees. And it's only after they've discharged these obligations that they're morally permitted to limit help to refugees. So if we take the nationalist position seriously, we'll see that states have much more robust negative duties towards refugees to refrain from harming and much more positive refuge duties to refugees to actually engage in, engage in providing aid to them. So I think it's noteworthy that even a nationalist perspective leads to the kind of conclusion that I would like to draw readers to.
1: Right. Right. Fabulous. So let's then turn to, and this is a nice segue to um, talking about the second crisis, which you sometimes refer to as the problem we have created. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, the sort of facts on the ground, like the actual options open to refugees? You already mentioned, uh, you know, sort of a kind of um, choice between uh, certain kinds of housing centers, certain kinds of uh, uh, um, uh, what you were calling urban settlements. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about what the refugee faces in uh, in seeking asylum?
2: Absolutely. It's helpful, I think, to contrast what I'm about to say about the actual options that refugees have with the options that are supposed to be options for refugees, the official solutions that refugees were supposed to be given uh, in the advent of the modern refugee system following the Second World War. So according to the Refugee Convention, refugees are supposed to have the following three options. Voluntary return, where the UN facilitates the return of refugees to their home countries when the conflict that caused them to leave would have ended. Local integration, where maybe they flee to another country and then over time become citizens of that country, are permitted to work, are permitted to get an education, are permitted to be part of the country. And the third option is resettlement, where a third state, so not a state that's hosting the refugees, but a state further away would bring over refugees and allow them to become members. So the U.S. has had a very vibrant resettlement program from 1980 until 2016, where where the U.S., in fact, resettled more refugees than any other country. That's, of course, no longer the case, but it was for a long time. But these options are no longer applicable to refugees in the 21st century. Fewer than 1% of refugees are ever resettled, as I think I mentioned. Last year, it was 0.25% of refugees. 85% of refugees remain in developing countries, countries in the global south, but not integrated. So they, for the most part, with the exception of two countries, don't have the right to work, don't have the right to gain citizenship over time. And only about 2% of refugees are able to go home in a given year. So voluntary return is the less and less likely of an option. The average amount of time a person is going to be a refugee is 17 years and 25 years. I, re- I just years. have to say,
1: when I read that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but when I no, saw the okay. 17 years, I was, uh, I, I was reading and uh, my wife was uh, sitting close by uh, uh, in the room and I just said, I'm, I just have to tell you this because this is a this is absolutely shocking to me. And uh, we we shared a moment with our jaw, you know, with our jaws at the floor. I said, 17 years."
2: It's, it's shocking, born, yeah. yeah. People
1: are born in, in these centers and you know g- grow up. And anyway, yeah. Please, sorry. Continue. Yes,
2: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And people in some cases are born and have their own children in refugee camps, and their children are going up in refugee camps. Um, yeah, so so we're not talking months, and we're not talking a few years, we're talking decades. And I think it's helpful to keep that in mind when we're thinking about this, because imagine you have children at any point in being a refugee. Um, this is how your children are likely to grow up. Right. So, in short, um, and, and escaping war, uh, the average is 25 years. And there's some, you know, we can talk more about the, those figures, but however you parse it, it's, it's years, if not decades, that people are going to remain refugees. So, in short, resettlement is not happening, voluntary return is not happening, local integration is not happening. So, what is happening? So, this is what I refer to as the real options for refugees which are refugee camps, uh, informal urban settlements, some people refer to them as urban slums where fewer than one in ten actually get any aid from the international community, or dangerous journeys to seek asylum. And I can talk more about these in some detail if you'd like, but none of these options provide a minimum conditions of human dignity that is, none of these options would actually stand up to moral scrutiny if we investigated whether or not we are justified in putting people in these circumstances. So I don't think we can give any moral arguments to support the actual conditions that refugees live in, that we have provided for refugees. Maybe some practical arguments, maybe people will say, well, this is the best we can do, or people aren't willing to do more. But morally speaking, we should be speaking out against these and demanding their reform in some profound way. Wow. Um, can I, shall I talk a little bit about each option and what they mean for refugees?
1: Yeah, that would, be, that would be great. Sure.
2: Great. So refugee camps are the standard way for providing aid to refugees of the international community even though increasingly refugees themselves are refusing to go to them. So what might happen if you're fleeing a civil war, if you're fleeing drought or poverty or some kind of persecution, you're likely to, you you have to cross a border, otherwise you're an internally displaced person, and that's a different category. You have to cross a border and the UN will set up camps to supply relief to you in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. And for many people, these camps are are greeted with great joy and it might be the first time they would have an ounce of security, a place to sleep, some food, some medical attention. The problem is that these camps, as I mentioned, don't just last as temporary structures. They end up solidifying and becoming like many towns. Um, you know, there are camps in Kenya that have, li- have been in existence for decades, And so while they do provide, to some extent, food, water, and housing, um, and very importantly, education for children, there are some very big negatives. The one that refugees will often talk about is their lack of autonomy. So they're not allowed freedom of movement. They're not allowed to come in and out of the camps, for example. So maybe they would want to go to the, the major city or they want to see family in other parts of the country. They're not allowed to do that. Importantly, they're not allowed to work, even though the right to work is one of the rights that we find in the UN Refugee Convention. Mm. There is a lot of violence and insecurity, um, not the least of which is gender-based violence, and so the kinds of sexual exploitation and sexual violence that are just a matter of course in refugee camps would also make your jaw drop, I think. Um, I think I have some quotes in there about, um, you know, UN workers saying things like, what's so bad about rape? You don't die from it. Yeah. Um, you know, life in the refugee camps are terrible. Like, What's a little, you know, sexual assault on top of that? And the idea is that I, I mean, the reason I think we should take this seriously is because refugee camps are, to a large extent, supported both financially by Western countries and intellectually as a viable way to protect refugees. Um, the reason you might go here is because it's your only chance of being resettled so you have to be under the care of the unhcr in order to be um, even considered for resettlement even though you know you only have a one can- chance of being resettled so violence insecurity lack of uh, possibilities for autonomy and i should point out i mean there is food but the food itself is of course often very very meager and yeah. if another crisis emerges in a different part of the world, food rations may be cut in refugee camps, as happened in different points historically, so that refugees themselves had to choose whether to stay in a refugee camp and starve or leave the refugee camp and go back home and face you know, the civil war, the violence they had fled from. So this is in part why, since 2005, refugees have chosen not to go to refugee camps and instead will go directly to an urban center in the country they have fled to. Uh, And so this has has an important benefit, which is that refugees are able to maintain their autonomy. They can work on the black market, they can find housing with family or friends or other co-nationals, and they can kind of eke out a living. Uh, as I mentioned, fewer than one in 10 actually receive any aid from the international community. And and currently, little more than half of refugees around the world live informally. So to wrap your head around that, we're actually only ha- helping <laughs> half of the refugees around the world and half the other half are receiving almost no help from us. Goodness. But because they're so precarious, they often have bad housing conditions. They're often exploited in their work. Wages are withheld. They're often put in very dangerous circumstances. Children are, of course, often forced to go to work. And what many refugee parents will say as the worst part of being an urban refugee is that their children have few opportunities to go to school. So they have... Very little access to education. So there, are, you know, there are some NGOs who are working. The UN tries to do its best, but you know, imagine you're a Syrian refugee speaking Arabic in Turkey, a country, of course, that speaks Turkish, not at all connected to Arabic. I mean, the challenges to providing education are so profound. I mean, they're profound in any circumstances, but for people who are unregistered, who are flying below the radar, they're extremely difficult. So, as a refugee, you're asked to choose one of these two options, right? To live in a refugee camp, with no autonomy, with some food, not much, with some insecurity, or to move to an urban center where you have more autonomy, but less resources and, you know, f- even fewer opportunities for your children. So, it's not surprising then, or it shouldn't be surprising, that since to, you know, since the 2010-2015. Refugees have chosen increasingly to risk their lives to seek asylum directly in a Western state, which is effectively the third option. Not asylum, but putting your life on the line and your resources in order to do so.
1: Yeah, and that, as you say in the book, and that creates this, as you call it, a cat and mouse game uh, with smugglers, right? That that the only way... In fact, in, in many cases, I, I'm forgetting the stat, but it was another shocking stat about how even uh, those seeking the the more official uh, routes uh, uh, for asylum uh, along their journey have to, do, you know, almost forced to do business with smugglers, right? Which <laughs> must be incredibly. Dangerous, even under the most favorable conditions, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Shall I tell you a little bit about this?
1: Yeah. Yes, please.
2: So, let me just um, start by reminding people why people seek asylum in the first place. So, some people will seek asylum because they just think refugee camps and urban slums are unacceptable, and they want some hope for their children, their for their future. Other people don't have a choice. So Eritreans, this group that I mentioned earlier, simply can't stay in Africa. If they fled Eritrea, their government wants them back to torture them and to put them in prison or kill them. So, And they have spies throughout Africa and in refugee camps. So if you manage to escape Eritrea, which is a feat in itself, you effectively have to come to Europe to seek asylum because you, there's no chance of security while you remain in Africa. The same goes for Central Americans fleeing gangs. Um, You cannot stay near to your country. You cannot stay in Mexico because the networks of gangs are so large that you risk being found out. So you hear these stories of people who are moving over and over again, going more and more north until they finally reach the border and hear about this thing called asylum. The other important thing to keep in mind is that Asylum seekers have one of the strongest rights in international law. This is called the right of non-refoulement, and it means that anyone who has a claim to asylum cannot be sent back to their home countries, they cannot be deported, until it's determined that they do not have a well-founded fear of persecution. And this puts it means that states have strong obligations to asylum seekers. So because of this, states have a kind of interest in making sure that asylum seekers don't come to their countries in large numbers uh, because they're not permitted to deport them in large numbers. They try to make it more and more. Uh, they, they try to put the onus on asylum seekers themselves to not come and they do this by way of deterrence policies Um, and deterrence policies are policies that just raise the cost of seeking asylum and they range from the banal to the absolute horrific on the banal end you have policies like requiring all people not just asylum seekers but all people to have a valid visa before they can uh, take a commercial flight or boat into your country On the one hand, that seems banal, okay, it's a bit of paperwork, but it makes it harder to seek asylum because now you can't just buy a plane ticket. Many of the asylum seekers from Syria in 2015-2016 were middle class and could have easily afforded to have bought a plane ticket from Syria to a country in Europe, but they were not permitted to. Other deterrence policies are much closer to the horrific um, to give you one example, the, the refugee camp in Greece that recently burnt down was built to hold 3,000 people, but by the time it burnt down, held 15,000 people. Uh, you had sewage running down the streets. You have parents worrying about biting their children at night um, yeah. or having them sexually assaulted on the way to the toilet. I mean, I could give and, you many other examples of this, of course.
1: Yeah, and that, that particular camp's name is the Greek word for necessity or fate.
2: Right, right. <laughs> which <laughs> which oh, yeah. when I saw
1: that, I was like, oh my goodness, it, it, it I hope this isn't deliberate, but my God.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: I'm sorry, please. They they have a good sense
2: of irony, perhaps. Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh. But we have, you know, of course, the example of children being separated from their parents in the U.S. Um, The the example in Australia, and I can mention this because there was just an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday that was written by... Um, the Iranian poet who had been held in Nauru for five years. And these are offshore detention processes where physical violence, sexual violence are routine, that the conditions are, are of s- such desperation that one aid worker said that she felt like her job was just convincing people to not commit suicide uh, you have the shutting down of search and rescue operations by the EU in the Mediterranean, even though they've saved tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, and criminalizing any private boats that help refugees. So in some cases, the intention is to directly harm and terrorize refugees and others. You know, it's the predictable, foreseeable outcome. In either case, to seek asylum means putting your life on the line, means means being risk willing to risk torture, rape, et cetera, for you and your children. Um, and just to highlight, to, to claim asylum, right, you have to be physically present in the territory. But because there's no legal way for, for the majority of people seeking asylum to come to your country, this is where smugglers come in. So in other words... Um, The U.S., Europe, Australia have made it really, really hard to get into their countries. And even though I think it's worth pointing out, there is a human right to seek asylum. So asylum seekers are in no way violating the law by seeking asylum. Nonetheless, smugglers have become effectively required. And smugglers are not traffickers, right? Traffickers are people who force people against their will to, to leave. Smugglers are people who are hired by refugees or asylum seekers themselves in order to, cr- to carry them across a the border or through a, different, a difficult stretch of land. Uh, in Europe in 2015, 100% of people who entered Europe used a smuggler at some point in their journey. Oh. Um, according to a EU report, this might have been one of those statistics that made your jaw drop. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and yeah, it's amazing. And they're so commonplace in many countries that it's simply a matter of asking a friend for a recommendation or going to Facebook and seeing which smugglers are doing which. Roots, <laughs> and so I think smuggling is should be understood as morally ambiguous because for many people in desperate situations, they see smugglers as the only people willing to help them. No one else will help them. They that they are there a lifesaver, but they're not good people for sure, and they do terrible things in order to maximize their profits. And they treat asylum seekers in horrific ways and put them in dangerous journeys, more dangerous journeys than they would need to be in. Um, and when smuggling became less of a mom and pop operation and more something that had to be professionalized because of how dangerous the roots had become because of deterrence policies, they effectively were outsourced to criminal organizations who simply added human beings to the things they were already smuggling and added something like three to six billion dollars to their profits. Oh. So even if you don't care about refugees, even if you don't care about asylum seekers, we should care about international crime, which affects all of us in profound ways. So as states have gotten more sophisticated about keeping refugees out, you know, the uh, the UK, I, I just saw an article last week, started using drones to ensure that migrants don't come from France into the UK. But asylum seekers and smugglers have gotten equally sophisticated. And so hence we have this cat and mouse game. And When I think of what we should be considering when we think of our moral obligations to refugees, it's this whole situation. 90% of refugees are in the global south in underfunded, insecure camps or urban squalor for 17 years with a 1% chance of being resettled. And the 10% of people who use their agency and decide they're not willing to endure this have to risk their life, have to risk their life savings and risk being tortured, sexually assaulted and dying just to claim asylum. I think all of this deserves our moral attention and requires an ethical response.
1: Uh, For sure. Um, So Serena, you've been um, really generous with your time. Um, I wanted to just ask, um, Given how bleak uh, 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 the um, uh, the facts are uh, in this case, um, so the conclusion of the book is uh, called "What Should We Do? What Should I Do?" Um, can you tell us a little bit about how um, where this leads, or or what what practical uh, upshots we should draw?
2: I try to not end the book on a. I mean, it's a it's a very depressing book in many senses. Not because the book is depressing, but because the crisis itself is so depressing. Right. But I think there are many things we could be doing if we're willing to think beyond resettlement and admission. Um, Alex Elienkov, who worked for the UN and is a human rights lawyer, has said, "Look, in a world of eight billion people, 25 billion people is not a huge number. I mean, we often behave as if it's just unfathomable that we could actually include all refugees in our countries and it's just not the case and creative smart people have come with all kinds of solutions that could be put in place and that could be supported if there were the political will to do so and there was i think the moral demand on the part of citizens in democratic countries that we be doing more for refugees Um, Just to give you a couple of like, you know, what should we do? What should I do? What should we be doing? We should be supporting refugees in the global south, in addition to supporting resettlement in more robust ways. Right now, 10% of our funding towards refugees goes towards the 90% of refugees that stay in the Global South. In other words, 90% of what we spend on refugees goes towards refugees that come to seek asylum. And a fraction, a pittance of what we spend on refugees actually goes to refugees in the global south. And I don't mean to go towards funding refugee camps. There are all kinds of ways we could encourage local integration. There are public-private partnerships we could be encouraging that would allow refugees to work, that would benefit the host countries. Um, that have been tried and that you know maybe succeed in some ways, fail in other ways. But these are the kinds of things we should be thinking about. There are ways of encouraging local particip- local political participation, so refugees have some kind of citis- city citizenship. Um, to demand that refugees be part of decision making bodies, uh, either on the UN or in local environments, and to really listen to what refugees want when and what they they are asking for. And what they are asking for is the ability to take care of themselves. And what this means is electricity, an internet connection, and cash. This is what they want. So I think, let's think creatively about how to help refugees in the global south. But also refugees, some refugees will need resettlement. Not all refugees will be able to help, be helped where they are. And what we need to do is to increase resettlement, do it on a much larger scale and do it in a more coordinated fashion where countries are putting pressure on each other to resettle more refugees and it's not unthinkable we've done this in the past in 1956 when 200,000 Hungarians fled to Austria increased the austrian population by 3% we could have just let hungarians flounder in refugee camps or you know go to vienna and make it on their own but we didn't we worked with we the united states worked with a coalition of 37 countries that resettled more than half of them in under 10 weeks wow. so it's possible to do this if there's the willingness. And this is where individuals come into play, because democratic leaders take their cue from citizens. And if we let leaders convince us that refugees are threats, then they can do whatever they want to refugees. But if we demand that an accurate portrayal of refugees, we demand that we take them seriously, and we listen to them, I think this will really change. Let me give you just one example when the okay. refugee crisis was going on in Europe in 2015 and 2016 there was all kinds of activism around refugees all kinds of books being written movies being made on the ground people were making care packages and bringing them to refugees or sending them with their friends who would go to you know refugee centers throughout Europe we think of the refugee crisis as having ended in Europe but the reason it we don't but it hasn't. It's just pushed, been right. pushed out of sight. Um, the EU made deals with Turkey and Libya that make it even more difficult for refugees to come. And it doesn't mean that refugees have gained refuge in any meaningful sense. We just don't see it. We don't think about it. They've been sent to die a slow death in Europe. But we can we can learn about this. We can find out about this. And so, there's if if individuals are willing to make a bit of an effort to follow these stories and to say that no, the refugee crisis hasn't ended, and we should be doing more. Um, we can then put pressure on our governments to be putting in place these these policies that undermine what I call elsewhere the structural injustice of the refugee system. So I think there's a there's reason to hope, not in a, in a you know what Hannah Arendt called a kind of reckless optimism, that if I just right. do X, Y, and Z, this, the crisis will be solved. Not at all. But I also don't think we need a kind of despair, that the situation is so overwhelming that there's nothing we can do. Many people think there's a lot we can do, and it doesn't need to be a crisis. So I think there's reason to be hopeful.
1: Well... Um... Serena, thank you uh, for that. And thank you for ending on, uh, uh, on that kind of statement. Um, and also, Serena, I want to just thank you for joining me on New Books and Philosophy. It's been a real pleasure uh, talking about your book. And
2: Thank, thank you, you for listeners. having me. It's been great. Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. Sure. Great, sure. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion of Serena Parrick's new book, which is titled No Refuge, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis. It's newly published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now.